Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. You know, this week, this week marks the birthday of one of the most significant men of the last century. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German Lutheran pastor in Nazi-controlled Germany. You know, it had to be a, a confusing time uh, in, that, in that day. Looking back, you know, we're left wondering how in the world all the German Christians and churches failed to stand up against the Nazis, especially since all of Germany basically claimed they were Christians. It was, uh, they were either Catholic or, or Protestant. Uh, less than 1% of the population of Germany was actually Jewish. In fact, in 1933, when the Nazis took charge, most Christians actually welcomed them, thanks to a mixture of resentment from World War I and uh, what was known then as German nationalism. Bonhoeffer was one of the few voices in Germany who actually spoke out against the Nazis and the Holocaust. Bonhoeffer's writings are some of the most profound and sincere reflections on the meaning of Christian discipleship. His book, The Cost of Discipleship, is still one of the best expositions of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus in the modern world in which we live. Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer, of course, led some of the internal resistance against Hitler, was ultimately tried and executed by Hitler's regime for his subversive activities. You know, it's hard to imagine what it would have been like to have lived through such a time, to have one's life on the line because of the stance he took against such a murderous regime, but, but that's what the peace of God actually can accomplish. Bonhoeffer illustrates for us why wisdom is such an essential weapon in the Christian's arsenal. There were many competing and contrasting claims that undoubtedly circulated during that tumultuous time. However, wise Christians were able to discern the difference and find truth. Doing so often cost them their lives, but it was a price worth paying. You know, we need to to particularly pay attention today as we are constantly uh, confronted with competing messages and various claims of truth. Over the last few weeks, we've unpacked various benefits of wisdom. One of the realities that we've uncovered is that, is that divine wisdom, pursuing godly wisdom, often pits us against the wisdom of the age. Undoubtedly, there's times where, where divine wisdom will make us enemies of the prevailing powers. However, in spite of the very real danger that was, that's posed by following the Lord Jesus Christ, wisdom ultimately leads us into peace during times of such tumult. This morning, I would encourage you to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 3 as we, uh, as we consider our journey through, through the book here. Proverbs chapter 3, I invite you to stand with me and we'll read verses 1 through 8. Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Father, we're thankful for the words of wisdom contained in the book. May we apply them appropriately and live as men and women with discernment in an age filled with different messages. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. So I want to dig into these verses, but before we dig into the the big ideas contained in chapter 3 here, there's a, a pressing question that we need to answer, particularly in light of the modern Christian church. And the question is this, does Proverbs preach prosperity? Does Proverbs preach prosperity? I'm obviously talking about the prosperity gospel that's been made famous by certain television preachers in our day and time. You can't ignore some of the verses that are contained in this chapter. For example, uh, verse 2, for a length of days and years of life, they will add to you. Verse 4, you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Verse 10, your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. And even verse 16 mentions riches and honor. Now, I don't know about you, but if if these terms were used to apply to me other than the part about vats filled with wine, obviously it's not Baptist prosperity. Uh, Obviously, though, this sounds very prosperous, this sounds very prosperous, and it sounds, I mean, who would, who would turn this down? The success and honor, and I mean, no one would turn this down. This would, be a, this would be a great life, right? And it's all tied back to those commands there in verse 1. In other words, if you keep God's commands, then God will respond with long life and favor and success and full vats and full barns. Well, isn't that the gist of the prosperity gospel that preachers get to preach in big monster stadiums filled with people? Isn't that what it is? Well, this is where clearly defined terms help us understand exactly what we are dealing with. You see, the prosperity gospel that's preached in these monster television-based megachurches, it's very flawed from the start. Not because of prosperity, but because of where that message actually begins. The prosperity gospel begins with self. It begins with with me. It begins with the individual. The prosperity gospel isn't any gospel at all. The prosperity gospel is simply materialism in religious garb. And because it's only materialism, then it it doesn't have eternity in mind. Its focus is on temporal comfort and and well, its focus is on prosperity. Now, there's no denying that the book of Proverbs here, at some level, does promise a degree of material comfort. We can't read Proverbs in a bubble, however. You can take individual statements in Proverbs and proof text yourself crazy. There's all, you can take individual statements and make all sorts of claims, but we can't ever approach the Bible with such an interpretive method. So we have to read the book of Proverbs in the context of the rest of the Bible. 
For example, in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, Jesus said, What is a profit of man to, to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? In other words, what, what good is all the prosperity on earth if you give up your soul in the process? Even there in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, tell us this. It says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Part of God's loving kindness to us is that he disciplines us. And if you've ever been under the discipline of God, it's hard to say that is a materially, a materially prosperous event. Uh, discipline from the Lord doesn't often come with, with, with dollar signs. Discipline from the Lord comes with pain. It comes with heartache. It comes with suffering. It comes with, with trial and difficulty. Nobody looks at uh, a child doesn't receive a spanking from his parent and say, man, that was a prosperous event. It doesn't happen. Because discipline is not meant to be something with which we associate prosperity. Now, the reality is, and, and we all agree, that God does indeed give good gifts to his children. Now, we all could count off blessings that God has given us, times where God has shown up and showed out, times where, where we've gotten the check that we weren't expecting, or times where we reap some benefit that we weren't anticipating. We all can have stories like that, but let's understand something. What happens, when, what happens when the vats of wine run dry? What happens when the barn burns down? Does that mean that we're no longer prosperous and that God no longer cares? Well, according to that gospel, that's exactly what it means. It means that you're, you're failing to live up, that there's, there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with your, your faith. There's, something, there's an error with you. Well, that's not always what that means. Because the prosperity gospel asks us to prioritize the gift over the giver. And the real gospel flips that. The true gospel recognizes what James chapter 1 verse 17 says, that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Everything good we have comes from God, but it also allows us to cry out with Job. In Job chapter 1 verse 21, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Meaning that when things are good, he is blessed. When things aren't so good, he is blessed because we focus on the giver and not the gift. Ultimately, we all have to understand that temporal blessings are indeed that. They are temporary. They are temporary. The Bible teaches us that moth and rust will destroy, thieves break in and steal. We understand that disease and sickness affects each and every single one of us. Stock markets fail, elections are lost. Ultimately, I think we all would agree that these different assailants that attack us in life are somewhat indiscriminate. We don't always understand the why this happens or, or why this happens to somebody. We don't understand that. It seems very indiscriminate. But if the fact of the matter is, is that each and every single one of us are affected 
If you follow the news at all of recent weeks and you understand something of what happened on the stock market when, when some internet traders got excited with some stocks that weren't worth a whole lot. And the nature of the stock market involves risk and gambling and things like that. And so some guys got on the internet and drove up the value of a stock that everybody said wasn't worth anything. And they said that literally billions of dollars in wealth evaporated in the course of that, in the course of that event. Again, it wasn't associated with any one person or any one person's character, any one person's faith. Literally, just the people who were involved in those funds, their money just, woof, was just gone. Just like that. It's indiscriminate. But it affects us all. However, while our perceived blessings may certainly come and go, we happily affirm what Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39 says, For I am certain that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, or the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. So that's that's how we handle the, the, the proverbial prosperous elephant in the room. That's what Proverbs is is getting to here, but I want to dig into the passage, and what we're going to find today is that it's organized around two main ideas, and the first one is this, is that there is a peace that God provides. If I were to throw out the following letters, we all might respond differently, A-D-H-D. Now, Everybody's kind of afraid. I don't know what to do with that. If you're a parent of a child who has those initials associated with, with who they are, then you might take a deep breath. Or you maybe chuckle to yourself, depending on the day or the hour in which you find yourself. There may even be some adults in the room who would happily raise their hand and wear the moniker of being an ADHD adult proudly, Right? You're like, that's exactly how God made me. It's how I accomplish everything that I accomplish. And even if you've never been formally diagnosed with ADHD, if you've got 12 half-finished projects sitting around your house, then you probably are a prime candidate uh, for being diagnosed. Now, some people mistakenly say that people who have ADHD can't pay attention to anything. But the fact of the matter is, is that they can only pay attention to certain things for so long before they have to pay attention to other things. And so they end up paying attention to a lot of things for short amounts of time over a long period, for over, over the course of, of their life. However, what I want us to understand in this is that even for someone who can't pay attention for very long, the fact is, is that they're still paying attention to something. They still are focusing on something, even if their focus shifts from time to time. And what I want us to take from this is the fact that everybody is paying attention to something. You're all here. You're all paying attention to something. In Proverbs chapter 3, though, God is saying, pay attention to me. Pay attention to me. But the thing is, is there are countless entities that are begging of you the same thing today. Pay attention to us. Pay attention to me. As you drive down the highway, there are giant signs everywhere, and their sole purpose is designed to catch your attention. 
Every time I sit at the red light there in Fort O to come up the hill, the, the digital billboard is there. I'm fixated to see what sort of advertisement is going to be shared with me as I sit there because somebody always has something about how long it takes to sit at the red light. And, I mean, there's always invariably something like that, but it's, it's, it's begging for your attention to, to see what it says. As you use the internet... There are complex algorithms that are compiling your activity so they can show you advertisements that will capture your attention. Sometimes it's so creepy that, that it almost feels like they're listening. You ever had that where you said something and then an hour or two later something shows up that, that was in the conversation that you just had? I don't think they're listening. I think they have us so figured out that they know exactly what we're thinking about and how to, how, to, how, to, how to capture our attention. At 6.30 this afternoon, there will be a massive effort that is taking place that its entire purpose is designed to do what? Capture your attention. They want to capture your attention. How badly do they want to catch your attention? They're willing to pay five and a half million dollars for 30 seconds of your attention today. And tomorrow morning on all of the social media and YouTube and every sports broadcaster will not be talking about the game. They might talk about whether Tom Brady is a goat or not, but uh, you know, that's irrelevant. The thing you're going to hear about most tomorrow morning is what advertisers won the night. Which commercials will make the biggest impact? They're already talking about it. They're already, they're already telling us about which advertisements are the best advertisements, all in an attempt to capture our attention. And the question has to be asked is this, what are you paying attention to? What is it in your life that has captivated your attention the most? And here's another question. Whatever it is, does it lead you to peace? Does that which has caught your attention lead you to peace? Now, look at the second part of verse 1. God says to let your heart keep my commandments. You see, in order to find peace, what Proverbs here is teaching us is that we have to maintain a, a vigilant watch over God's instructions. The word keep is much deeper than just obey. This is not about, you know, checking the box and making sure that you do everything that you're supposed to do. It's much deeper than that because the word keep has a sense of, of maintaining or tending to something, much like you would keep a garden, right? I mean, keeping the garden isn't about going out and, and just planting it and see what happens. If you've ever kept a garden, you know that you have to go out and, and tend to it. You have to go out and deal with the weeds. You have to go out and make sure that it's watered and that it's fertilized and that the critters don't have access to it. Keeping a garden is like, is like having a seasonal child. Uh, it's going to demand your attention as long as it is there. This is the, what this word is, is conveying to us, is that we are, to, we are to keep God's instructions. We are to keep God's commandments. We are to maintain them. We are to tend to them. It is not a passive state. It is an active state. And the reason that we have to constantly maintain our vigilance over God's commands is because we are under constant bombardment from other ideas that want to steal our peace. Constantly we are, we are confronted with things that want to challenge us, that want to distract us. 
They may give the illusion of peace, but in the end, all of these things are just fake news. Your career wants to give you the illusion of peace and security. But what happens when your job is cut or your boss changes or you know the little section in your job description that says and other duties as assigned by your supervisor? What happens when that starts to get filled out a little bit more than what you bargained for? Well, suddenly that career isn't a place of peace. It's a place of of unrest. It's a place of challenge. It's a place of, of heartache. What about the drug or the pleasure or the distraction? It offers peace. It says, come, come take me. Come do this. Come watch this. And you can have some peace. Well, what happens when the high wears off or the dopamine shuts down or the distraction comes to an end? Because the reality is, is that's guaranteed. It's guaranteed. And all these are concepts that we engineer with our mind, that that I just think in my mind that my career will give me peace, that that I just have convinced myself in my mind that this drug or this habit or this addiction or this hobby is going to bring me peace. You know what we call those things? They're called idols. And our mind and our heart produce them relentlessly. And they are constantly vying for our attention. And the Bible here says your heart's job, your, your, your heart's responsibility is to maintain, is to keep, is to keep a watch over God's instruction in your heart. Because all of these false claims that are competing for your attention are guaranteed to fail. Because the truth of the matter is this. God remains steadfast and true to us all the days of our life. Notice how these divine characteristics are are supposed to, how they're supposed to take effect. Uh, First of all, we understand that, that this steadfast love and faithfulness is supposed to be highly visible. The Bible here says that you are to to bind it around your neck. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that if you bind something around your neck, it's going to be pretty hard to hide, right? I mean, I mean, uh, there's no secret if you bind something around your neck. For, For example, I absolutely, I despise wearing a, a noose, I mean a necktie. I hate it. Like, y'all don't understand. Like, if I have to do weddings and funerals and things that call for neckties, you don't understand how much I hate it, and so that should make you appreciate it that much more. I despise it. And it never fails. I mean, sweet little old ladies, I mean, the preacher's supposed to dress a certain way, but when the preacher puts a tie on, it never fails that the sweet little old lady says, well, don't you look sharp? Because all I did was put a tie on. There's no hiding it. It could be an ugly tie. It doesn't matter. There's no hiding it. It's there. It's visible. You can't help but see it. It's not a secret. You see, when we encounter the world around us, we ought to be conveying something of God's love and faithfulness because we have bound it around our neck. There is no hiding it. There's no secret. It is visible to all. However, too many people claim to follow the Lord, but they don't show anything to the world about His love and his faithfulness. Brendan Manning said this, he said, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips 
and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. The writer of Proverbs goes on here, he says, secondly, these things are supposed to be written on the tablets of our hearts. Now, in 21st century, we think of tablets and we think of we think of these things, right? We think of the, the digital babysitter that keeps the kid entertained with, with, with whatever, you know, we'll, we'll hand them the iPad that'll keep them satiated for a while. I mean, that's what a tablet is to us today. But the problem with that tablet is that if you type something on it, there's a, there's a button, you delete it. That's not the tablet that the writer of Proverbs has in mind here. He's talking about a stone tablet with permanent etching. I can go over here into the cemetery that, and the old part of the church cemetery and there's tombstones over there that you can't read them because they're covered with algae and, and, and stuff that, that grows on old rocks like that. But I can take a piece of paper and a crayon and I can lay it over that tombstone and I can, I can get an etching and I can read exactly what that tombstone says because it's been written in that stone. It's been carved into that stone stone, and it is a permanent arrangement. You see, there are constant pressures and temptations that are trying to find their way onto the tablet of our hearts, but it is only God's love and faithfulness that should have that priority place. That means that there should be a consistency for the Christian. His outward testimony, that love and faithfulness bound to his neck, should match his inward reality where it is written on the tablet of his, of his heart. Wearing a cross around someone's neck is not the same as binding the steadfast love and faithfulness of God in that highly prominent place. And so God provides us peace as we obey Him and listen to His commands as we guard our hearts against those other voices. But at the same time, there is a trust that God demands. A few years ago, Gabe and I had the opportunity to go zip lining in Honduras with some friends. It was a it was a it was a great experience and something we 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 loved doing. Uh, this place that we went, it had lots of, of zip lines that went back and forth over this this very deep kind of ravine. Uh, I mean, 300 feet to the bottom of this thing. And so, so you're talking about a 300-foot a span with 300 feet beneath your feet. I mean, it was, uh, uh, if you were scared of heights, it was not something that you wanted uh, to do. And one of the things that this place did is to, to kind of get you warmed up for the big ones, they had this low zip line rigged up. It was long, but it was, it was close to the ground. And so you could kind of see how the process worked, you know, how they, how they hooked you in, how you, how you worked it. I mean, they, you, gotta, you got to experience everything about zip lining, but you could, if you fail, I mean, you, you know, nothing's going to happen except you're going to land on your rear end. No big deal, right? And so the, the idea was simple. It was a lot easier to trust the zip line when you were three feet off the ground than when you were 300 feet above a ravine. One of the young men that we were with us there, he, he got on the short line. And by the time he got to the end, he was done. Again, I mean, three feet off the ground, but by the time he got to the end, he wanted nothing to do with it. He was absolutely terrified. You see, he didn't trust the system. If you've never ziplined before, it's pretty simple. You get on a cable and you tell Isaac Newton that you're in charge. I mean, that's what happens. Um, you either trust it or you don't. I mean, bottom line, you either, you either trust it or, or you don't trust it. There's, there's nothing half-hearted about it. 
Once you are hooked on and you jump off the platform, you don't get to decide halfway. Yeah, I don't really like this. I don't trust this anymore. You're in, all in, 100%. You know, trust in terms of faith, it's a lot like that zip line and that harness. Trust demands that we stake absolutely everything on the gospel promises of God. The Bible says to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Not just a portion. You don't get to get halfway and say, oh, this isn't for me. You, you got to trust all of it. Partial trust is, is no trust at all. You can't partially trust the zip line. If you do, you're going to get hurt or you're going to miss the experience altogether. You see, there's a lot of Christians who trust Christ like my friend trusted the zip line. It's all good when it's safe and I can reach the ground. But when our, when our command to follow Jesus takes us into a, a place where conditions change, where, where, we're, we're not, where we can't see the bottom, well, then we decide it's time to handle it ourselves. But you see, when we place everything on the gospel, when our, our entire life is based on the gospel, everything we hold dear is based on the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fact of the matter is this. If God fails us, we are damned. But if God comes through, we're saved forever. Here's a question. How do you know if you're trusting completely or if you're holding some back? How do you know if you're trusting completely or if you're holding something back? I want to give you three questions to ask yourself. The first question to help you answer the first question is this. Do you allow the Bible to overrule your own thinking? Do you allow the Bible to overrule your own thinking? Uh, stated another way, do you simply agree with the Bible or do you obey the Bible? There's a difference. If you agree with the Bible, then your response to it is just a coincidence. However, if you obey the Bible, then when the Word of God conflicts your own, with your own opinion, you defer to the Word of God. It's always right, even when it's not what you want to read. Have you ever been in that place before where you, you want to go a certain direction and you're reading the Bible and it tells you not to go that direction and you think, I either have to do what it says or do what I want to do? Well, I think we've all been there before, but if you completely believe the Bible and obey the Bible, then when the Bible contradicts your direction, you put the brakes on and you do what God says. Is the Bible do you always write, even when it's not what you, want, what you want to read? Secondly, do you believe in the necessity of the gospel for salvation? Do you believe in the necessity of the gospel for salvation? What do I mean by that? What do you think about all the sincere, well-meaning people who don't have a relationship with, with, with Christ? Do you really believe that you need Jesus 
to be at peace with God. Now, again, that's what the Bible says. So if you answer the first question, the second question answers itself. But if you doubt that, then the fact is, is you may be placing yourself in the category of sincerity, but you may be missing the person of Jesus. And thirdly, when is the last time your faith felt risky? Like jumping off that platform for the zip line. Risky. It's like, I believe this. I can see how it's anchored. I understand the physics in charge. I've, I've done it before. So I believe this, but I still have to step off the platform and trust the system. When's the last time your faith felt risky? When is the last time your Christian convictions made you look remarkably different from those around you who do not share those convictions? When is the last time your Christian convictions cost you a, a promotion at work? When is the last time your Christian convictions cost you a job? When is the last time your faith felt risky? Depending on how you answer those questions may dictate whether your trust is completely in Christ or not. You know, as you, as you likely know from news, our, our congressional district's representative has been somewhat embattled as of late due to some social media activity and whatnot. It's a good lesson for all of us to be mindful of what we put on all the stuff out there because it never goes away. Uh, I took some time to listen to her press conference on Friday, and in the middle of all the politics, she said something that was quite profound. She talked about how she got to stand up and admit where she was wrong. And then she talked about how freeing it was to actually own the mistakes. Now, set aside all the politics and your opinions, good, bad, indifferent, just listen to the words. What Miss Green was actually saying is something akin to what Proverbs is teaching here. Verses 7 and 8, be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. And I love what he says here, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. It would be good for all of us if we could fear God, and turn from evil. If we could simply take the time to own our mistakes and put our trust in God. Because Proverbs warns us here to trust God, not our own understanding. Because if we are leaning on us, if we are leaning on our own understanding, we're going to come up short. If we are trusting our understanding before we hit post, or comment, or reply, we're going to fail. Proverbs tells us to trust God, not our understanding. You see, the prosperity gospel, circling back to the beginning, it says that, that you've got to lean on your own self, your own faith, your own words, that, that that's how you manipulate the system to, to, to get what you need. It's about your, how you speak, and it's about the faith that you possess. 
In this corruption of the gospel, getting your best life always begins with you. But the Bible tells us that if you want the very best that life has to offer, it never starts with you. It always begins with fearing God and turning from evil. Would you pray with me, please? God, I want to thank you for the, the challenge of your word that in Christ there is peace that's available to us if we will obey and trust, if we will fear you and turn from evil. God, I, I pray that as we seek peace in this life that we might also, might also learn something about trust. Not this half-hearted, wishy-washy obedience. Not this convenient obedience that, that will follow you until, until it's hard but that we would model the obedience of men like Bonhoeffer who, following you and speaking out against the millions of voices, literally cost him his life. That's trust. That's faith. That's confidence. And that's believing in you in spite of the cost. It was risky faith, but it was well rewarded. Lord, we are living in a day and time where there are countless voices begging for our attention. But may we guard our hearts. May we keep our hearts. May we tend to our hearts and follow your instructions. And it is there that we will find peace. Fearing you and running from evil, it is there that we will find refreshment for our bones. So may we have the courage and the confidence and the faith to follow you. God, again, we're grateful for your goodness, and for your kindness, for your mercy, and thank you for saving us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.